Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA On The Go. We're back with one final special episode from our Distinguished Speaker Series, and I'm so thrilled to bring our listeners this short but powerful conversation between Texas CASA CEO Vicki Spriggs and internationally known youth permanency expert Kevin Campbell, someone we at Texas CASA truly look up to and never cease to be inspired by. In this discussion, Kevin and Vicki talk about the role of compassion in child welfare work and how CASA advocates can influence the quality of justice experienced by children and families involved in the child welfare system. To hear more of Kevin's powerful message, make your way over to our Distinguished Speaker Series page and watch his wonderful 30-minute talk. Enjoy. Kevin, it's great to have you yet again in Texas. Good to see you, Vicki. It's great yeah. to be here. Thanks. Thank you. We have a lot of questions and a little bit of time. So okay. I'm going to jump into it. And my first question, um, you talked about you talked about a number of things, but there are certain things that jumped out. One, I want to talk about the notion of um, invited but unwelcome. Because when we talk mm. about family finding, we're talking about engaging families, but I too often see and hear people talking about, we're gonna let the family do this, which doesn't sound like engagement language or welcoming language to me. So can you talk about that a little bit more about invited but unwelcome and talk about what welcomed, invited and welcomed looks like? Yeah, well, I wanna acknowledge the, the, the words invited but unwelcome. They really came to me through learning about the, the great migration of African-Americans in the United States after, um, after reconstruction and the, experience of African Americans being invited into industrial cities as a workforce, but not being welcomed there. And that really sets the stage for what I mean. I think we have, you know, my my family finding work started at a time in child protection when we believed children did not have families. We often said they did not have fathers. And what we proved in our research is that they always did have a family and and every single one of them had a father. Um, and we, and that led to changes in legislation, as you spoke about in the bio. But the fact that we proved that these families existed and they had fathers didn't mean they were any more welcome than they ever had been. And this really, at its heart, is we've got to confront, um, in the present day, we have to confront the fact that we continue to um, have traditions in this system that, um, you know, that don't hold a great deal of respect for parents and don't and and where parents are seeing skeptic you know it, through the eyes of judgment um, it also means we're judging grandparents who are judging the family and again who's in care in this country in texas who's in care the vast majority of people in care in texas first of all experience economic inequality often generation generationally so and they're disproportionately far too many African-Americans and too many Hispanic kids in care. So this is, you know, it has its roots in questions of, of equality and justice. And, um, and to not speak the truth about that is to not take seriously our work as advocates for children. Thank you. Thank you. And again, which is we're so happy to have you because you give a holistic um, you have a holistic view and able to really share that well. 
Um, I'm going to be jumping in, in terms mm -hmm. of questions just because sure. there's so many that came in. Um, someone noted that sometimes it's actually best to split up sibling groups as opposed to keeping them together. But you talk about how half of sibling groups are split up at the start and never see each other again. And if yeah. we really are talking about family and family support and connectedness and relationships, um, that doesn't seem like the, the splitting up doesn't seem like the best way to go. Can you talk some more about that? Yeah, well, first of all, beyond my own thoughts, let me be really clear. Um, in 2014, in the United States Congress, um, there was a major child protection reform bill passed that was signed into law by the president. And that law included addressing the issue of sibling separation. And what it said was the assumption that should be made um, is that siblings stay together. In other words, our start place should be always believing that children belong together as sibling groups, that we should, that the law is very clear that children should only be separated in extraordinary circumstances, that we have to demonstrate a standard of evidence to the court to even have that separation occur. But that's not what's happening in practice. We unfortunately separate, often separate siblings on Friday afternoons and Friday nights when, when the agency doesn't have enough beds to put all the kids in one home. That's how kids get separated. The, the sibling separations that become everyday practices in child welfare systems that are struggling for resources, um, that everyday practice has a lifetime of consequences for kids. So having said that, I think the person maybe asking the question may have had or may have an experience that where you could point to, you know, a, a, a particular situation where there may have been danger or, or, or a lack of health evident in the in the way these kids developed a relationship. I, I, I hold room in my belief that that could happen. Um, and we should we should um, evaluate every case individually. But I think the wise approach is to follow the law here because it's informed by by the voices of people who were in care and the majority of people who were in care or were adopted and separated um, say more than any other thing what they want in their lives to their brothers and sisters. Thank you. Someone raised the question, um, well, actually in your talk, you mentioned when we work with families, we need to make a radical shift from a needs-based approach to a capabilities-based approach. Right. Seeing people first for their inherent value as a person and then focusing on their strengths. And so mm -hmm. someone asked the question, well, how do you do that? Um, and balance that with the notion of holding parents accountable for the harm that may have come to their children. Yeah, well, it's a great it, it's a great question, and I, I often speak about the importance of learning how to hold two truths, or at least two truths. Right? Um, we often, most often, have real evidence that stood up to scrutiny in the court that there was significant neglect, most often, and sometimes abuse of children. That happened. It is also true that um, peop that families, parents children, the family are capable of healing and recovering in the con in a, in, in a strong context of support and um, caring from, from the community. And so it's not about one or the other. It's about holding both things to be true. There really is evidence of these concerns. It stood up to scrutiny in the court and people are extraordinarily capable of recovery. And, um, and that's the constitutional, um, mandate for child welfare. It's the mandate for child welfare is not a foster care system. It's to um, it's to respect the 
sanctity given in the Constitution to the American families as the backbone of this nation. And I, I think, unfortunately, again, for some reasons I commented on earlier, we've struggled with that because the population most likely to be tied up in this remains in a, in a um, vulnerable position when it comes to being seen as full persons in this democracy. And we, we just that's the truth of it. And we have to confront it. Yeah. So and our child welfare system isn't designed to address those bigger systemic issues that you just talked about, like poverty and systemic racism. So mm -hmm. how does a CASA worker or a child protective services worker, how do you effectively support families impacted by these factors when their tools and roles are often limited? So I was trying to get at that in the talk a bit, um, as I've been thinking a lot, of, you know, I think a lot about Texas CASA. You, I think, you know, Vicki, I think you guys are... Um, the most powerful example of what a CASA organization in this country can be. And I think that what I was talking about is it's not, not altogether at going to be at the individual volunteers level to address this, but at, at state level CASA, we can have, you have influence with the legislature, with the governor, with the public. Local CASA programs have deep, wide connections in their community. And advocacy for kids is more than the individual relationship with the child who you're volunteering for. Um, it is the at a larger level uh, using your influence to help the public understand and policymakers understand how their how we um, construct justice in this country has real and measurable impacts on the on the health and the lifelong well-being of children in our country. And that's what we're here for. You know, I, I think if I'm an individual volunteer, I'm going to pour my heart into the work with that young person or sibling group. Um, I, and that's what I should be doing. But I, I'm looking to to the staff at the program and to the people in the community that, sort, that support the program to be pouring their efforts into improving the quality of justice for people in the country economically and in other ways. Thank you. Uh, and I want to come back to that. Um, but the question I want to ask next is um, something in the chat box that's kind of merged with another question that came in. Um, mm -hmm. At Texas CASA, we're engaged in the process of working actively to apply a more equity-focused, family-focused, and connection-informed lens to our messaging and our right. practices. Yeah. Um, and so we had a question in the chat box where someone is asking, what are the resources that someone can access that tells you how not to refer to children and families that are that they're working with as that they're working with, um, and what advice can you give them about how to talk to and engage families? Well, I, you know, I, it, I um, wrote. A, by the way, I want to mention. We'll send you. I wrote a paper after recording the talk for you guys that because I was thinking a lot about it and it was published by the federal government last week so we'll make sure you get it and can make available to your members and they can do a deeper dive um, but um, I you know I and, the, and what I, I talk about is mindfully positioning and I think the place we want to stand with children and their families in the is in a place of belief in them in the belief, you know, I, I've just come to a place in my life where I, I, I'm affected every day by this greater and greater confidence that human beings are extraordinary, that the construction of families is an extraordinary thing and we should believe in them. 
And that's the starting place. Let's believe in them. We can hold two truths. There's, there may be practical and real safety worries today, and we need to be responsive to them. And at the same time, you can hold a fierce belief in what, if you don't mind my saying it from my viewpoint, in what God created. That's what we're called to do. That, that is about democracy. If it's not you know, just about your faith, it's about democracy. It's about look around you. This, we are extraordinary things uh, in terms of, of, of beings. And I, I have learned in my work um, uh, to believe in healing, to believe in capability. And, um, and people can't do that alone. You have to stand with them. Um, so we stand with people. That's, we're here to stand with people. And it's just, it, I, I, spoke, uh, I spoke sometimes about, um, about uh, Greg Boyle's work and Boyle, you know, says, you know, when we go to the, we don't go to the margins to rescue people. We go to the margins to stand with people. They may certainly be returned to themselves, but we are returned to ourselves. And I, I think this is personal. And I, I think you want to make it personal. Stand with people. By the way, it's not just their health that will be improved. It will be your own. Absolutely. And I think it's the difference between standing with people and standing on people. The That's difference right. between seeing people as objects and seeing people as people and recognizing yeah, full, the inherent beauty and value. Yeah, we uh, in the in the uh, uh, narrative therapy world, they talk about telling full, thick stories. We. It as volunteers want to always look for the full thick story and the story will have worries in it. It will always have worries in it, but the worry is not the end of the story. The worry is where, what brings us to the story as volunteers. It's what we do after there. That is the real meat of, of the opportunity of being a CASA volunteer. There you go. And yeah. I'm sorry to say that our full thick story for today has just come to an end. Uh, it's my um, pleasure. Time flies with you, Kevin. We so, so appreciate you and look forward to having you back um, either for our next Distinguished Speaker Series and in person when we get to that point where we can do that again. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your expertise and for just being part of the skeletal structure of Texas CASA's family finding development. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa.